How do we get a handle on the complex issue of abortion? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss the abortion issue, both the pro-choice and anti-abortion positions. Unfortunately, Ken wasn't in on the interview because he was recovering from oral surgery. How are you feeling, man? Well, better. Truth be told, I would like to be younger. (laughs) Yeah, who wouldn't? (laughs) And I'm trying not to lisp when I talk. An important attribute for a podcaster, not lisping. Indeed it is, and may I compliment you on your handling of this entire episode solo. You really didn't need me at all. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. You were sorely missed. And it's a much better dynamic with both of us, but thank you. You're welcome. So we're going to play for you an interview that Steve conducted with Dr. Miriam Piven-Kotler. Miriam Piven-Kotler, Ph.D., is a clinical ethicist at several hospitals and has served as a visiting professor at the UCLA School of Public Health. She has served as an associate professor in the UCLA School of Medicine, the Distinguished Scholar in the Bioethics Institute Graduate Program at Loyola Marymount University, and is Professor Emeritus at California State University, Northridge. In addition to her teaching and clinical consultations, Dr. Kotler has served as a consultant to the California Medical Association Council on Ethical Affairs. She is also a member of the Bioethics Steering Committee for UNESCO and serves on several editorial boards. She has co-chaired the Los Angeles County Bar Bioethics Committee and for several years chaired two regional institutional review boards. Dr. Kotler has over 75 peer-reviewed publications, and she is currently writing, It All Depends, a guideline for making tough medical decisions. So here is the interview with Dr. Kotler. Miriam, welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for being our guest. Miriam, the subject of this episode is abortion. I think we agree that abortion is a major issue that divides our society. Ken and I are looking to understand the different sides of the issue as a way to foster greater insight and hopefully help to unite the country. So let's start with some basics. What kinds of abortions are there? Well, good morning, Steve. As Good morning. As I think everyone if we stop and think about it, recognizes abort means stop. And abortion with respect to pregnancy literally means termination of a pregnancy. Many pregnancies are spontaneously aborted. Before we had home test kits, women didn't even know they were pregnant because the body will slough off an imperfect pregnancy within six to eight weeks. We call that a miscarriage, typically, right? Um, Well, sort of. Miscarriage implies you know you've been pregnant. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And people can miscarry through viability. So they're spontaneous. And then miscarriages later on typically well, not typically, but may end in a therapeutic abortion, which is the second kind. And that is that sometimes the pregnancy is not going well. 
the fetus is not going to make it, the woman's life is at risk, etc. And those therapeutic abortions are different from an elective abortion, which is the kind I think you want to talk about this morning. An elective abortion is the decision on the part of a woman to terminate the pregnancy. But I think it's important for everyone to understand that abortions happen. They're normal, natural, part of pregnancy, part of being a woman who who is sexually active. They happen. I'm sorry. I think choice of the word miscarriage reflects that differentiation that we want to make in our minds. The word abortion carries a significant amount of stigma. And so if we have a spontaneous abortion, we don't go around saying I had an abortion. We say I had a miscarriage because the word may be abhorrent to some. That's a great point. Yeah, of course. And words are important. So who typically gets an elective abortion? Typically, the woman is poor, more likely unmarried, although married women do get significant numbers of abortion, and they have been a mother before. Okay. That's really interesting. I never thought of that. Why wouldn't you? Typically, the woman has been a mother before, so she already has has a child or two when she decides to have an abortion. Well, a significant number of abortions are triggered by poverty, which says, I cannot afford any more children. And socioeconomic reasons are far and away the greatest cause. Are there long-term consequences, like affecting the ability to have a child later or anything like that? The research consistently says there's no impact on fecundity. With multiple abortions, it's somewhat uncertain. In certain countries, abortion is used as a means of birth control. And there we don't have good data, so we can't say for sure. But for women who have two or three, the evidence is there's no impact on ability to have children in the future. And is there physical uh, and psychological pain involved? Well, physical pain may be nominal or non-existent, depending on the woman on the stage of pregnancy, on the kind of analgesics and the type of procedure. The psychological pain is very significant in societies where it's not a means of birth control. The latest study I've seen was by Surgeon General Coop in the 1990s, and it's accompanied by severe psychological pain But it's important to note that he and others have said that it is less than the pain described by women who have been forced to have children that they felt they should not or could not have. And that the psychological pain of getting pregnant unplanned or when there are problems with it is significant whether or not you terminate the pregnancy. And what about the morning after pill or the plan B pill? I have not Uh, seen any data on that, but most women don't regard that as a true pregnancy. They regard it as a means of birth control. Okay. The morning after kind of has that in its name, but it is a form of abortion in that you probably have one of those 
home tests and you test it and you come up positive and so you, you take the pill. As I said, there are no good data on it, as far as I know. It's not accompanied by the same kinds of trauma. Sure. So what is the pro-abortion position? And just for everyone listening, my position is pro-abortion, but I try to stay as open as possible. And Ken and I are both, you know, we're trying to understand the other position in every case whether we would agree with it or not. But what is the pro-abortion in this, in your understanding? Well, I think there are several pro-abortion positions. The fundamental one is that life begins at conception, that life is inviolate, that we cannot take a life, and therefore that abortion is a form of killing. That, that's, that's, the that's, fun, that's the fundamental position. That's the fundamental anti-abortion position. Anti. Yes, yes. Yes. Right. What's the what's the pro-abortion position? Well, pro-abortion. First of all, I'm uncomfortable with the term. There's pro-choice, and then there's pro-abortion. Pro-choice says a woman has a right to decide what should be done with her own body. That she is, and this may be a somewhat arcane distinction, but we distinguish between persons and humans. You know, being alive and having autonomous choice as a person may not be exactly the same. But the pro-choice position says, look, it's my body. I have a right to decide what to do with it. This is, for a variety of reasons, not acceptable to me. It's, It's not going to be tenable. And it may threaten my very life and certainly my life as I need to live it. And therefore, women should have a choice. The pro-abortion position, I, I think, I don't know anyone who says, oh, you should just have the right, go ahead, do it. So I prefer to call it pro-choice. Okay. I personally have another reason to be pro-abortion. I'll tell you a, just a real quick story. When I was a, a freshman in college, I met my friend's older brother's girlfriend. And sometime after meeting her, she had an illegal abortion. Abortion was illegal in Massachusetts back then. And she came home, hemorrhaged, was rushed to the hospital, and almost died. She recovered, was later married, had a daughter, everything turned out fine. But If she had been living alone, she probably would have died. And I decided then that abortion had to be legal. I mean, it has to be performed by a licensed medical professional in a medical facility that can take care of the woman if anything goes wrong. That is just pragmatic. It's a conservative, Edmund Burkean, pragmatic look at it, you know? Where you're saying you want to ban abortion. Well, what do you expect to have happen once you ban abortions? You you know what's going to happen. And what I think, though, when you said to me, what's the pro abortion position? Mm -hmm. I didn't hear the question as I think you intended it. Because I think you were asking the pro legal abortion position. Okay. And. 
it's important for everyone to understand that before abortion was legal, that people had abortions. They had them all the time. Rich women could always get a medical abortion, a safe abortion. I mean, sure, sometimes there were complications, but they could always get it. It was always illegal, but it was practiced. And there were huge public health significance to that. And that had an impact on the legalization. There was sterilization. Now, some of that was decreasing with the advent of antibiotics after World War II, starting in the 1950s. But women were dying. The coat hanger stories, the throwing yourself downstairs, the taking poisons. Yeah. The point is that women are going to have abortions, legal or not. If they can afford it, they'll just use their money to go somewhere where they can have a legal abortion. If they're middle class and they can afford it, they'll find a reputable abortionist somewhere. But if they're go poor... Go to a different state. Yeah, or they'll go to a different state or Canada or whatever. But if they're poor, then it gets really scary because people die. The term coat hanger abortion is so gross, but it exists for a reason. Yeah, the reason being that it was commonly practiced. Horrible. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking about the legal pro-abortion position, which brings us, of course, to Roe v. Wade, which is presently under attack. And can you tell us what does Roe v. Wade allow and disallow? What, what is it about? Well, if I may start with the rationale. Mm-hmm. It's based on privacy rights, the limits of the state to interfere in our most basic decisions regarding families and parenting. Consistently, the Supreme Court held up until Roe v. Wade, consistently the court had increased person's private rights uh, with regard to sexuality, family, parenting. And Roe v. Wade was based largely on the technologies of the 70s. In the 70s, we thought about trimesters and pregnancy lasting 40 weeks. The first trimester, a woman, according to Roe v. Wade, has the option of deciding whether she wants to carry or terminate the pregnancy. In the second trimester, there should be some medical indication. And in the third trimester, there needs to be some threat to the fetus or the mother. Again, that was based on the concept that what's a third of 40 or two thirds of 40, that up until about the 29th week or 28th week, that you weren't dealing with an entity and being careful here with words that could live on its own. Right. In other words, it wasn't viable. That's the term that's commonly used. Okay. And that was based on 1970s technology. Has the technology changed? Considerably. Some places will now try to resuscitate, and some places have even been successful in resuscitating and treating a fetus at 22 weeks. But it's common 23, 24 weeks, depending on the condition of the fetus, to try and treat and bring it to term. But five 
five months is a pretty immature. No, 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 six weeks. Well, you're saying you're saying twenty. You're saying twenty, twenty-four. Weeks. No, no, no. Twenty-four weeks is six months. Okay, that's what I'm saying. Five months, twenty weeks would be a pretty tiny baby at that point. There's not, as far as I know, there's not been any successful delivery below 22 weeks and most commonly between before 23 weeks. But okay. it's important to note that neurologically, as well as with respect to the other organs and skin and things like that, the fetus isn't really developed. Neurologically, they say 27 weeks. So okay. it's very tenuous. Even with our technology, it's very tenuous. Sure. And I think that question of viability is kind of at the center of, of Roe v. Wade, right? Because Roe v. Wade is saying you can have an abortion up to the viability of the fetus, but after that, it's not allowed unless there's a medical problem. Well, it's allowed until the third trimester with a minor medical, but at, after the third trimester, in recent years, some states have disallowed it, and now it's disallowed. But that in itself is an ethical issue that, if you'd like, I'd be happy to give you an example. Yeah, sure. Please. When Congress was deciding to pass the limits on third semester abortions, there's a well-known letter written by a woman whose physician I happen to know. The letter was read in Congress by Senator Feinstein. It was addressed to her. The woman is an affiliated, observant Catholic. She had, I don't know, three or four children at home and learned well into her third trimester that not only did the fetus have a condition incompatible with life, but that if the pregnancy continued and she was allowed to deliver vaginally, that her own life would be at serious risk. And she found a physician, also Catholic, who did third trimester abortions. And with great care, he delivered that baby by cesarean section. She and her husband and family said their goodbyes and buried it. And she talked about the heartbreak. She said, these are families who wanted the pregnancy. They've carried through to the third trimester. And now there's a significant risk to either or both. How can you outlaw that? Right. Interestingly, this particular physician worked at a hospital where I consulted and was under review by physicians because one thing we haven't said, Steve, abortion is a political, religious, as well as a social and extraordinarily fraught issue. Absolutely. And it divides the country. Politically, it's probably one of the most divisive wedge issues that we have. But, right. But you and I have talked about how else can you explain evangelicals voting for Trump? Under normal conditions, they would have just rejected him right out of hand, but he was the only pro-abortion candidate they could vote for. So they, I'm sorry, anti-abortion candidate. 
So they voted for him, despite everything. And I think that's a real consideration politically. And then legally, it's a quagmire. If you're an ethicist, you look at it from the ethical standpoint. Like you say, that woman's decision, in my mind, is ethical. Legal or not, it's ethical. What else could you expect from her? It's a really good example of the law tells us what we can do and ethics tries to tell us what we should do. doesn't always do a very good job. But you may be interested to know that according to the most recent data I could find, 79% of the United States citizens support the right to have an abortion either all the time or some of the time. 55% support it under certain circumstances. Only 20% say it should always be illegal. And that's consistent with the religious extreme conservative position. Who have hijacked the issue at the moment, it seems, in certain states. And and possibly the Supreme Court as well. In my field, a recently, a newly deceased ethicist was a neurologist and a philosopher. I'm neither who, in the preface to his book, said, I'm a born-again Catholic who believes abortion is murder. He was a libertarian. He said, I also believe in women's rights. Two comments about him. One, I had a student challenge me. She said, how can you assign this text? And I said, because we all have positions on these issues, and this man is putting them out there up front and yet acknowledging your right to a different position and saying, let's talk about it, because if we lock the door and talk until we can talk no longer, we will not come to an agreement. So let's see how we can live together. But the other thing is, I once had a case that was profoundly complex, and I actually called him in Texas. And he said, and I'll never forget it, I think it's important to remember, he said, the closer the fetus comes to term, the greater our moral duty to it. And that helps us, I think, in moral terms to understand the philosophy behind Roe v. Wade and separate it out from the technology. Just to clarify a couple things, the language of the abortion issue, it gets confusing. Some of the terms include, like you said, pro-life, pro-choice. I'm sorry, you said pro-choice. There's pro-life, reproductive rights, which always confuses me, access to abortion, reproductive health care, which to me that doesn't say anything about abortion, ending a pregnancy, partial birth abortion, which was a big to do. I don't. People don't talk about that anymore. That's the third trimester abortion I was just talking about. But partial birth abortion, it's designed, the language is designed to say, wait a minute, what is this? The baby's half born and then you abort it? It's a ridiculous phrase to me. I don't disagree, but I think that it stems partly from one of the ways to do the procedure was to produce delivery medically. That is, give the woman something to force contractions a non-surgical, and then deliver the baby 
and I call it a baby here in this, with no intention to bring it to life. That's a little bit beyond me. And it's more graphic than you want to be. Yeah, okay. But to me, when you say pro-choice versus pro-life, I consider those to be propaganda terms. Everybody is pro-choice. Do I want coffee or tea? I'm pro-choice. And everybody is pro-life. Do you want to live or die? I'd rather live. To me, those terms were invented for political reasons. So we could have arguments that go nowhere. How dare you make this choice? And how dare you take this life? I don't buy it. To me, pro-abortion, anti-abortion, it's plain, it's clear. Am I wrong? I know you prefer pro-choice. I prefer pro-choice to abortion, to have an abortion, because pro-abortion sounds, to me, it's less nuanced and it doesn't adequately, for me, describe the respect that one needs to have for the procedure. I think it is a very serious decision that women make. And that sounds trivializing it. It is an emotionally driven decision to keep it or to not keep it. Whichever way you go, it's fraught with all kinds of of issues. We haven't talked about the feminist argument, the rights of the male, any of those other arguments. A woman who knows that she is potentially able to bring something already in her body to term and to life. As I said, unless she's living in a society where this is a means of birth control, has to pause, usually. Incest or rape is probably a lot easier. But it is an important decision in someone's life. And pro-abortion, to me, sounds less respectful of the importance of the decision. But that's me. Okay. And I'm okay. old, too, so. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're both pre-World War II, uh, or at least. Pre-World you know, War II? Super world War I, even. I'm just feeling my, my mortality these days, because my birthday's coming up, and it's like, you know, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm this old. <laughs> February 8th. So well, I'm this Saturday. So oh, okay. Good. Congratulations. Happy thank birthday. You. And you, uh, happy birthday. Thank you. So, you mentioned a, a very brief description of the anti-abortion position. Could we elaborate on that a little bit? What is the anti-abortion position in its, in its complexity? I don't think that there's a single coherent anti-abortion issue. As I mentioned, there are the religious issues. Life begins at conception, and it's a killing. It's a form of killing. At the moment, you can tell where my prejudices are. What else is there? Well, there's the whole conversation about the potential to become a human being. Oh, right? well, you want me right? to talk about that? Yeah. and it's When I was including, I'm sorry, I was then, including then, right, that right. in the life begins at conception. Okay. But then the whole question of an immortal soul, which I don't necessarily believe, but that most people believe. Those are a part of it. If life, I'm sorry, you want the implications of life begins at conception. Sure. Implications of that are that, A, we do have an immortal soul and that it is a sin. The other is that 
there is a potential life there and you have no right to take a potential life. Now, the counter argument to that is you have potentiality versus the rational existing person for whom you are asking 40 weeks, of whom you're asking 40 weeks, you're asking lifelong responsibility for the care, financially, emotionally, every other way of another human being. You're insisting that they bring a human being into the world to relate to an existing family when they don't have the means to do so, etc. But trying to understand the other side, and having been raised Catholic and 16 years of Catholic indoctrination, I mean education, uh, the whole concept of an immortal soul, everybody uses the word soul to mean different things, but that's a commonplace. I completely dispute the whole potential thing. I mean, could potentially be the next Hitler. Who knows? Potential. But if you believe that there is such a thing as an immortal soul, then you have to pay attention to that argument. Because if you say a woman has a right to choose, and the other side is saying abortion is murder, so what you're saying to them in their mind is a woman has a right to commit murder. Exactly. Which, of course, which, of course, most people would just reject out of hand, unless it's, you know, self-defense or something. You can't say, okay, if the fetus is threatening the woman, then you say, oh, yeah, okay, that's self-preservation, yes. But if the fetus is not, you don't have the choice available to you to take that life. That's why the two sides can't agree, because they're not talking about the same thing at all. You're you absolutely you... right. Okay. The word murder is different from killing. I agree. Yeah. Okay. It's a, a value-laden charge to say you're committing murder. And that charge is leveled by those who believe abortion is always wrong. And it's very important to be aware of that. But what you've identified in my mind is the reason that this is a true ethical dilemma and why the law isn't solving it and it's not going to solve it. In other words, under Roe v. Wade, almost 80% of us thought that that was a fair compromise, that it was a reasonable way to respect women's rights to make a choice until you have a viable fetus and that then it has to be recognized as a more significant act. For the 20% who say it's always wrong, as long as it's potentially available, you're not going to get them to agree. That's why it remains an ethical dilemma. So what we're really talking about, it seems to me, is not when you started this conversation, you said help unite the country. And I think that that's a very optimistic but sorry, unrealistic. It's an aspiration. It's Aspir- not, a, not a plan. <laughs> you know, we're, yeah. we're, how, how are Ken and I going to unite the country? But I mean, it is our intent. Our goal is to present things into public discourse that could potentially help unite the country. It's an aspiration. Exactly. Yeah, and, okay. you know, in my work, I've learned to deal with 
the conflicts that aren't going to get resolved. They're heartbreaking. There's a wonderful book written by Peggy Batten called The Least Worst Death. There are situations in which, for example, you're not going to get families to agree. You're not going to have an outcome that anyone is happy with. And consensus is a myth. So what you're looking for is the answer that is least destructive, is most respectful, where you can negotiate in peace. And let me point out, who are the people who are not being peaceful in this conversation? That we're killing people at abortion clinics and shooting and killing doctors who perform legal abortions. People who are always against abortion are always in favor of capital punishment. You're right. Pro-life is bogus. You're pro-gun, you're pro-capital punishment, you're pro-life. And you're not in favor of supporting this child once it's born. How are you pro-life if you say you're on your own kid with a mother that doesn't want you? Good luck with your life. Or... Or a mother who didn't want you but is trying desperately to work two or three jobs to yeah, work yeah. and just can't do it. And that's what happens. There is no connection between being poor, not feeling you can afford that other child, having it, and then taking care of it or not taking care of it. Folks, we've been talking with clinical bioethicist Miriam Piven Kotler. We're going to take a short break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. We're having a conversation about abortion with bioethicist Miriam Piven-Kotler. Miriam, we've been talking about this dispute that the country is having, as long as I can remember, And the whole issue of the embryo having an immortal soul from the moment of conception or, say, you know, within 40 days of conception or whatever, and you're saying it's not coherent, I would tend to say it's not rational. Would you agree with that? Non-rational, metaphysical, outside the realm of science and logic, but no less, yeah, but no less human. Right. So it's a religious in your mind, it's primarily a religious consideration. Right. 90% of the country is religious in some way or other. But, and but and yet, yeah. we are not going to disabuse people, and I think it's disrespectful to argue with them about that if that's their belief. I think we need to respect it. The question is, what do we do with it now? And right. that's why, as I have said, Abortion is a profoundly ethical question that we're not going to resolve. Okay. Well, what we're trying to do is understand both positions. Yes. I I agree with the pro-abortion and pro-choice position. Let me just get into what, as I understand, the reason for the other position. You can just bear with me here. To me, the moral foundations theory is important. I don't know if you agree with Jonathan Haidt on this, but the moral foundations theory proposes that several innate 
and universally available psychological systems are the foundations of what is called intuitive ethics. So the one that's called care slash harm, including nurturance, and then there's loyalty betrayal and authority subversion moral foundations. So for some people, the morality and ethics based on these foundations may extend to care for the unborn as well as a moral duty. So in terms used by Ernest Becker, if you were to say protecting the unborn may be a heroic act, it bestows symbolic immortality. So so the religious version, there's actual immortality, their immortal soul, but there's also society providing symbolic immortality. The problem with abortion is it effectively strips the clergy and the community leaders of their ability to fulfill their moral, in their minds, the moral obligation to protect the unborn, which in their view turns them into helpless bystanders as this innocent unborn child is, as they would say, murdered. Could it be that some people unconsciously see abortion as a threat to their hero system and their symbolic immortality? And that's why there's an impasse. The answer is yes, I think that, and I don't know whether it's unconscious or deliberate, that they do see it as a threat to their system. And I think that's very well articulated every Sunday and during the week. Okay. But that's only one of the arguments. And as you were speaking, I was arguing with you because everything you said represents their position absolutely correctly. But on the other hand, they're not carrying or potentially carrying that child. And You'll notice I hesitate to call it a child. Sure. And we can talk about that. But there have been societies in history that have practiced infanticide. Where they say, look, we can't afford this kid. We can't feed it. Put it on the hillside. Let the wolves get it. Done. Civilization, we say, no, the society has a duty, a moral obligation to the child. It's helpless. The parents may not want it, may have put it up for adoption. The society steps in and says, we'll take care of it. As I mentioned earlier, the closer that fetus gets to becoming a child, the closer to term, the greater our moral duty. Infanticide, although there are some ethicists like Peter Singer who would even argue the morality of infanticide, but the closer that becomes a person, a human being who's capable of breathing on its own, the greater our moral duty to it. But it's not such a leap for a person to believe that the unborn has rights. And people have actually gone to court, and there are lawyers that represent the rights of the unborn. Exactly. They don't see it as, oh, the closer you get to, no, they're saying, This individual, immature as it is, unviable as it is, has an immortal soul and therefore a right to survive. If they were capable of having a conversation with me, I would say 
if I were to grant that and acknowledge it, it would still be true that there's a conflict of rights. Right. Because there is the right of the woman to not be forced to either carry this or give birth to it or then be responsible for it. And when Amy Coney Barrett says, well, you can always put it up for adoption, she totally ignores the strain and trauma and entire process of not just being pregnant, going through a delivery, but then giving up a child. Oh, yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, yeah. well, it's incredible and it is inhumane. Yeah. And incredibly disrespectful. But when you're a Catholic like her, in my experience, they are absolutists in some ways, and they are absolutely right in their calculus. Well, unlike you, Steve, I'm not Catholic, but I did teach at a Jesuit university for seven years, and I've worked at Catholic hospitals for many years. And that position is not universal among Catholics. Catholic women have abortions, and in some neighborhoods, the same rate as everyone else. And practice birth control, too. Exactly. And it's important to acknowledge that until now, the fetus has had no legal standing. And some states are changing that. Political and religious conservatives want to call it a baby. It's not a baby. It's not born. And the question of when a clump of cells becomes an embryo, becomes a fetus, becomes a baby, was thought very carefully in crafting Roe v. Wade. And the technology may have moved the time back, but the fundamental process hasn't changed. Okay. Now, this embryo, clump of cells, embryo, comes a fetus, it's a living thing. A sperm is a living thing. It swims. Ugh. Um, go ahead. I'm well, not granting it. I'm listening. Okay. But in other words, the anti-abortionists say this is murder. And you reject that, and I do too. But it's abortion... It's inaccurate, because murder has right, malintent. Right. Absolutely. But abortion is killing. It's killing an embryo. Most everyone thinks nothing of swatting a fly, swatting a mosquito. The uh, carnivores among us eat chickens and pigs and cows that somebody has to kill to get them into your, your supermarket. So there is killing involved in an abortion. Is this a denial of what abortion really is? Is this irrational? Because there's irrationality on the anti-abortion side, but is there irrationality on the pro-abortion side? I think you're touching something important, and that is perhaps the public posturing hasn't given sufficient credence to that feeling, but it's what I'm getting at when I talk about the solemnity with which women approach having an abortion. There is a a sense of loss 
even though the decision is not questioned. Okay. And I think our public discourse has failed to acknowledge the nuances on both sides. Agreed. We're hollering at each other. Exactly. They're not really listening. We're just, right. you know, pontificating. Yeah. Right. And, you know, I was finally able to find one article, Fathers, the right to be a father or not. We don't even talk about that. And yet, aside from Amy Coney Barrett, who makes no sense, it's mostly the men who are doing the arguing. And as far as I know, none of them have ever been pregnant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have four offspring. I wouldn't call them kids anymore. Two of them are 40 in their 40s. Um, but I have been present at four live births for really amazing experiences. My whole world changed after I witnessed the first one. Oh, my God, now I understand what women are about. I didn't know prior to that how tough women are. They're a lot tougher than men, folks. Men, you're into mixed martial arts. You have no clue what a woman goes through in childbirth until you actually witnessed it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I went and I asked Sheldon Solomon, I don't know if you know him. I also approached Jamie Arndt. These are experts in terror management theory research. And I asked them if any research had been done on abortion. They said they didn't know of any. It's worth studying to learn if an anti-abortion person, when asked to reflect on abortion, not themselves having an abortion, just abortion in general, they have higher what is called death thought accessibility. In other words, they react as though someone asked them to think about dying. And so the question is, does it make sense that being reminded of their mortality by thinking of abortion would stimulate an unconscious higher level of defense of their worldview and increase their conscious opposition to abortion as they try to defend against that death anxiety? Now, this would not be the case for a pro-choice person because abortion is not a threat to their central tenet, their worldview. So does this make sense to you? I'm, this is a half-formed idea of mine, but... Why would a pro-choice person not have a sense of death threat? It could, but, I mean, it's possible, but probably would not would not feel a need to defend a worldview, a system of values, because it's not a threat to their central tenet of their worldview. I hesitate to accept the premise. Okay. Because... And as I said, there's been no research done, so I'm making this up. Because someone contemplating an abortion may have considerable concerns about, am I killing something? And reflection on death and life. Mm -hmm. And well, well, I'm talking about it. I'm talking about an unconscious process. Even un no, but even yeah. unconsciously, I think that's a precedent question. Okay. Okay. So I, I really that, do. Okay. In that situation, if if both sides are somehow being exposed to 
death thought accessibility, which is comparable in terror management theory to mortality salience. I'm going to throw in these terms around like I understand them. I barely do. But if both sides are feeling this way, both sides then are fighting for their own symbolic immortality. And as Ernest Becker would tell you, people will die to defend their immortality. People will fight to the death to defend what they believe is a threat to their worldview, their values, their identity. And these are under the surface. These are not conscious, rational. These are unconscious forces at work. And in that situation, you can be talking about pro-choice and immortal souls and blah, 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 and never get to what's really going on within the psyche of the person you're conversing with. That's why I wish Ken were here. He could tell me, yes, you're being coherent or not. I, I don't know. Being coherent. Okay. And, and, and what you're saying is clear. But I want to go back to the pro-capital punishment position. Why does that not trigger? Well, I, I don't know. I'm just saying that to my way of thinking, if abortion is a death reminder, which if in your mind it involves killing, then it's a death reminder. If it doesn't involve killing, then it doesn't. But also, if abortion is tapping your, your moral foundation, protecting the unborn, whatever, and then someone's saying, but Roe v. Wade has decided that you can't do that, you're feeling a threat to your value system. And that threatens your defense against death anxiety. That and, may and, be true, and it taps into believing that life begins at conception. Sure, that's why I'm saying the pro I'm sorry, right. yeah, the, 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 the pro abortion person probably doesn't have that unconscious response. And I'm saying they may or they may they may they may they we don't know. Yeah. They don't feel cavalier about not continuing a potential life. Got it. That's interesting. I'm still in conversation on this subject, and I'm hoping that in the next year or so, some terror management theory folks will go into the lab and will do some research and come out and tell us this is what their findings are. Steve, you're an idiot. Shut up. You know, or... <laughs> Steve, you've got an idea there. We'll put you as the third name on this paper we're writing. Whatever. But getting back to this, trying to understand the opposition to abortion and this belief in an immortal soul and that it's a religious concept, but it's a religious concept that Christians, Jews, Muslims, they all affirm that a, a fetus has a soul. And so... If abortion is seen as undoing God's intention, God has intended this fetus to be formed. It's given it an immortal soul. He's expecting it to become a human, and you're undoing his intention. So, would you comment on the possibility that our secular society's willingness to take the unborn's life, as they would, as the anti-abortion people would say, 
and the immortal soul, that weakens the religious communities and the members of the religious community's belief in their own immortality. Again, exposing them to dread. In other words, they're not getting a yes vote from our secular society. And it's I not... Think, I think okay, what it does is make them angry. I don't think it weakens right agreed but what i'm saying is why are they angry for and the very if, reasons you described okay, how okay. dare you challenge my belief how dare you condone killing right but think about this for a second if i tell you hey i'm an orioles fan and you say well you know they're a pretty lousy team you know they lost like 110 games last year I don't, I don't, (laughs) and I say, no, but you know, I'm a lifelong Orioles fan. And I say, well, I believe, well, I mean, what does my belief in the Orioles future success mean? You're not threatening my defense against death anxiety. You're not threatening my symbolic immortality unless I was a, a raving lunatic Orioles fan. We're not talking here about just Oh, an affront to yes. my, my position. We're talking about you're talking about death. Right. You're talking about symbolic death. You're talking about the defense against death anxiety that may be at the heart of this whole thing. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so in that case, how should pro-abortion activists respond to this impasse you're not going to convince anybody that's my point okay good that's precisely my point and i i think the answer to your question about can we unite the country is no (laughs) okay well okay okay. but ken ken and i interviewed dan lichty i don't know if you've ever met him brilliant guy we've known for a long time that we love and respect and he said look Roe v. Wade is a compromise, as you said, and I love the word compromise in this case, because the two positions, they're diametrically opposed. And that's why Roe v. Wade sidesteps both of them to some degree and says, yeah, you have a right to choose as long as the embryo is not, the fetus is not viable. Yeah, let's go back to how can we live together if we're not going to get consensus, which... okay. I discussed earlier, and that is we're going to negotiate in peace, which unfortunately isn't happening. We're going to be respectful, which isn't happening. And to me, that's the the tragedy. Right. I agree. And on both sides, by the way. I was just about to say that. I was just about to say on both sides. Absolutely. Right. Right. right, right. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't gotten violent on the the pro-choice side yet. No, but, but it's... It could come. And it's disrespectful, but... Yes. I confess disrespect, so what can I say? <laughs> I'm trying. But when someone says to me, we have these conversations at times, when someone says, well, they, they just want to take away control of my body. They want to control women's bodies. And I say, I... I've never heard anyone say that on their side. 
I've never heard anyone say, well, we want control of women's bodies. Uh, yay. No, no, I, I, no, I, but I, I, they're uh, disrespecting yeah, women's bodies. Yes, yes absolutely. Discounting yeah. them. Yes. And it's not just their bodies. It's their, their persons. Right. And we had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Tommy Ann Roberts on existential feminism and objectification theory that she oh, helped. I'd love to hear it. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, you're going on our list. You're going to you're going to have access to all of our podcasts, and that's a fascinating conversation. Yeah, and no, she, I and will she ex- definitely hear it. And she explains why women voted for Trump in that conversation. Okay. Well, yeah, I need yeah. to hear it. Yeah, yeah. I know we're pretty much done. Yes, I yes, wanted yes, yes. sometimes think about men and their rights in this whole conversation. Yeah. Well, I don't know of any men. I don't know of anywhere where someone says we have the right to your body. You have to get a vasectomy now because you're thirty. You're over thirty-five, so you know it's time for you to hang it up. I mean, you know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's like, oh, you know, your your penis is too small. You need implants. You know, you're required by law. I mean, there's nothing like. But what are the rights of the man when the woman wants to have an abortion or wants to have a baby? It's a tough question. Yeah, that is another time. No. Yeah, <laughs> right. I'll have a whole pot of coffee for that one. Uh, right. That's a tough question, and I'm really ambivalent on the subject. I'm fortunate. I have I have offspring that are going to live on after me, and and a grandchild, and that's all cool. But if I didn't, if that pregnancy was the only shot I had at a son or daughter, I don't know how I'd feel about the woman saying, well, I'm going to have a, an abortion whether you like it or not, pal. Or, I, or I'm going to have the baby and you're going to support it, yeah. even know my last name or not. <laughs> yeah, you well, yeah. You was sex. You didn't agree to anything else. Yeah, yeah. We have that in our family and, you know, at least in New York City. They come at you and say, you're the father. You can contest it, but we'll do a DNA test, and you're the father, and now you have to contribute to the support of this child. And if you don't do it, you go to jail. Well, no, Steve, no. I hope at some time you and Ken will talk about what is a mother and what is a father. Oh, wow. Wow. Never thought of that. Well. That's an amazing question. Is it just biological? No, absolutely not. Yeah. And you can have a wonderful father who has no biological relation to you at all. We have a granddaughter that has no biological relation to my wife, but she's our granddaughter's nana. Right. Yeah. Right. I understand what you're saying. You have no hope that we're going to unite the country. Is there any hope in your mind at this point? For what? That we're going to get through this without killing each other. Oh, I don't think we'll kill each other. I'm. Boy, I do. You've heard of the denial of death. I'm in the <laughs> denial of this whole controversy. <laughs> I'm hoping that I'm hoping yeah, yeah. beyond hope that we don't overturn Roe. Right. But if we do, it'll go back to the states, and I'll be careful not to leave my state. Wow. If it goes back to the states, we've got hundreds of years of experience with what that's going to look like. 
We know yep. what's going to happen. But there's no issue. We know what's going to happen. Yeah. And they are in denial. The other side is in denial of what's going to happen. They think that if they make it illegal, it'll just go away, and they're kidding themselves. Right. That's why it's an ethical issue. Thank you. It's been a wonderful conversation talking with you. We've been talking with bioethicist Miriam Piven-Kotler about abortion-related issues. Miriam, again, thank you once again for a terrific conversation. My pleasure. Take please, care. Please, please be our guest again. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You have been listening to an interview with clinical bioethicist Miriam Piven-Kotler discussing the ethical conundrum of the abortion issue. Steve, what's your takeaway? Yeah, well, this is a tough one. Yep. Miriam is an ethicist, and she states that the abortion issue is an ethical dilemma. Now, in philosophy, ethical dilemmas, also called ethical paradoxes or moral dilemmas, are situations in which an agent stands under two conflicting moral requirements, neither of which overrides the other. And she's saying it's unsolvable. Well, that's the way I hear it. She said, abortion is a profoundly ethical question that we're not going to resolve. Yikes. Well, you know, I'm always looking for hope in these things. Can we just take a minute to walk through the high points and see if there might be a loophole? Absolutely. Miriam said that a significant number of abortions are triggered by poverty, and socioeconomic reasons are far and away the greatest cause. She also said that the psychological pain is hugely significant, but that it is often far less than the pain described by women who have been forced to have children that they felt they should not or could not have. So social class, economics, psychology, privacy, liberty are all involved in this issue. As Miriam put it, the law tells us what we can do, and ethics tries to tell us what we should do. She said that 79% of the United States citizens support the right to have an abortion, either all the time or some of the time. 55% support it under certain circumstances. Only 20% say it should always be illegal. And that's consistent with the religious extreme conservative position. Yeah, 55% support the right to have an abortion under certain circumstances. I guess the question becomes, what are those circumstances? Rape? Incest? Medical emergency? It's not absolute, is it? No, it's not. Miriam said, if we lock the door and talk until we can talk no longer, we will still not come to an agreement. So let's see how we can live together. Now, that's the big question. How can we live together? She said, the closer the fetus comes to term, the greater our moral duty to it. That's pretty close to a compromise. It's another way of articulating Roe v. Wade, right? I think so. We got into the anti-abortion position in more detail. One argument is that, quote, life begins at conception. Another is that there is a potential life there and you have no right to take a potential life. Miriam said the counter-argument to that is that you have potentiality versus the rational existing person of whom you're asking 40 weeks. You're asking lifelong responsibility for the care financially, emotionally, every other way of another human being. You're insisting that they bring a human being into the world to relate to an existing family when they don't have the means to do so. 
etc. It's a counter-argument where one position has nothing to do with the other. It's like, you remember that, that joke they used to say in school, do you walk to school or carry a lunch? <laughs> right. Not to make light of either side. Right. But you're right. It's an ethical dilemma, as Miriam points out. The two sides are talking past each other. Part of it is terminology. Miriam maintains that the word murder is different from killing. It's a value-laden charge to say you're committing murder. I agree. To me, that's a propaganda term. Yeah, and Miriam points out that this is a true ethical dilemma, and it's why the law isn't solving it and is not going to solve it. She said, quote, Under Roe v. Wade, almost 80% of us thought that that was a fair compromise, that it was a reasonable way to respect women's rights to make a choice until you have a viable fetus, and that's when it had to be recognized as a more significant act. For the 20% who say it's always wrong, as long as it's potentially available, you're not going to get them to agree. That's why it remains an ethical dilemma. Yes, and it's a legal issue because... Roe v. Wade is not a law. It's a court decision that one side does not accept and wants to overturn. Miriam said, when you started this conversation, you said, help unite the country. And I think that's a very optimistic, but sorry, unrealistic aspiration. I agree, but it's aspirational, as you pointed out. It's what we're about, after all. Yeah, it is. You know, we're tilting at windmills. As usual. She also said, in my work, I've learned to deal with the conflicts that aren't going to get resolved. They're heartbreaking. She said, you're not going to have an outcome that anyone is happy with, and consensus is a myth. So what you're looking for is the answer that is least destructive, is most respectful, where you can negotiate in peace. But she went on to say, and let me point out, who are the people who are not being peaceful in this conversation? that they are killing people at abortion clinics and shooting and killing doctors. She's right. It's heartbreaking. We're watching our country come apart. I love America. I feel compelled to do something. What can I say? But Steve, maybe this is a loophole. She said, if that's their belief, I think we need to respect it. You asked, could it be that some people unconsciously see abortion as a threat to their hero system and their symbolic immortality? And that's why there's an impasse? She said, the answer is yes. She added, I think that, I don't know whether it's unconscious or deliberate. They do see it as a threat to their system. But she added, it would still be true that there's a conflict of rights. She emphasized that there's the right of the woman not to be forced to either maintain a pregnancy or give birth, or then be responsible for the baby after it's born. She did agree about the public posturing, not giving sufficient credence to the fact that abortion does involve killing something. She said that's what she's getting at when she talks about the solemnity with which women approach having an abortion. There is a sense of loss. She notes that our public discourse has failed to acknowledge the nuances on both sides, As she says, we're hollering at each other. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, it seems to be what we do. We ended up talking about hope, as we often do. It comes down to how can we live together if we're not going to get consensus? Miriam said, we're going to negotiate in peace. 
which unfortunately isn't happening. We're going to be respectful, which isn't happening. And that's the tragedy on both sides. I love this line. She said, you've heard of the denial of death. I'm in the denial of this whole controversy. Yeah, right. (laughs) She said, I'm hoping beyond hope that we don't overturn Roe, but if we do, it'll go back to the States, and I'll be careful not to leave my state. Well, that's right. I can't disagree with her. We're in denial on both sides. I just keep hanging on to possible solutions, not that you and I are going to unite the country and save the world. You think? We're not. (laughs) Well, well, we're not done yet. We have a few more podcast episodes ahead of us. You mean we might have some more important ideas? Well, at least they'll be important to us. Right. So thank you, Miriam, for an outstanding, thought-provoking conversation. Folks, join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, Exploring Human Motivation, now on YouTube. Thank you for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.